Romans chapter 12 this morning. As a believer in Jesus Christ, my sins have been forgiven. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I have been declared to be righteous before the one holy God. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I have been crucified and am now freed from the penalty and the power of sin. Anyone who has placed their faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ has been transplanted from the state of sin and death and condemnation and has been placed into that realm of eternal life. Before, we were part of the world. We loved this world. We wanted the things of this world. Now, a transformation has taken place in us. We now stand reconciled to God. We are now at peace with God. We are now part of the family of God. We love our Lord and Savior, and we now want what God wants. Before, we wanted what the world wanted. Now, we want what God wants. Becoming a believer in Jesus Christ is not the same as joining a club. It's not the same as changing teams. There is a spiritual transformation that has taken place in us, a supernatural change that has made us alive in him. This is what we've seen so far in the book of Romans. Paul lays out what is required to be a believer goes into detail about humanity's sinful state, what it means and what is required for any person to become a believer in Jesus Christ. To become a believer means that we have recognized our own sinfulness, realized that we are inadequate to be in the very presence of God. We are unworthy of living with Him for all eternity, and we are destined to spend eternity in hell. It means that we have recognized those things, but it also means that we have acknowledged that He has provided a means of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. A believer then is one who has repented of the sinfulness of his previous life, the things that were true of him before, and has placed all of his faith and trust in the work of salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross on our behalf. We have believed in the gospel message, thus the term that we use, a believer. We've believed in that message. Now what does that mean for us? Well, we're saved and praise God for that. But now what? What does that mean for us day to day? What does that mean for us in the way that we live our lives on a daily basis? In the first verses of Romans 12, Paul told us what it means. He started us into this section. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In light of what he has said in the previous 11 chapters of this letter, in light of the great mercies that God has shown to us, we are to present our bodies as a sacrifice to him using these bodies that we have here on earth as instruments of His. How can we do that? We do that, first of all, by not being conformed to this world, not letting our lives and actions be molded by the world around us. That was the state that we were in before, all those things that were true of us in the past. We do not let ourselves be molded to that anymore but by being transformed by the renewing of our minds, by going through a daily, ongoing sanctification process that shapes us into the very image of Jesus Christ. Those that have experienced the power of God's salvation are of a new character. We are not our own. We now belong to the one who saved us. In the following verses, after those first two in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, Paul showed us our responsibility that we have as being a sacrifice in now serving in our local church by utilizing the gifts of the Spirit that every believer has been given for the purpose of building up one another in this local body 
so that together we can be effective in our ministry of proclaiming the gospel and bringing glory and honor to God. That is what we are called to do within the body of Christ. That is why we're here. But our responsibilities don't end there. They don't end with just that. Our, our lives are not transformed simply so that we can act and behave a certain way amongst believers and then act like the world the rest of the time. We're, we're not to behave just that way three hours a day or three hours a week when we're together and then behave like the world the rest of the time. That's not how we are to behave. With salvation comes a change of our very character. In the remaining verses of Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to show us some of those characteristics. He gives us a list of things that should be present in the life of the believer. If someone does these things, will that save them? People take these lists sometimes and they say, see, this is what you need to do to be saved. That is not what Paul is saying here. This is not a list of things to do to be saved. As we've seen countless times in this letter already, no works can justify you. No works can save you. But someone who is saved, someone who has already been justified by faith in the gospel, will show these things to be true in their lives. These things will be evident in their lives. So Paul will present a list without much explanation on each one. We'll talk about each one. But a list of things that should be true in the life of the believer how we should behave specifically towards others, believers and unbelievers alike, are presented here. So we start in verse 9. And Paul brings this subject up rather abruptly. Love without hypocrisy. The New Testament translators in most translations add the words let and be in here so that most of your versions probably say let love be without hypocrisy. But in reality it merely says love without hypocrisy. Short and to the point. Love is what governs the life of the believer. Love should be our motivation for all that we do. Every action in the Christian life should pour out of love. We see here the same thing that Paul does um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. Turn over there with me for a minute. We'll, we'll flip to a number of passages. I'll read some without having you flip there. But look over in 1 Corinthians 12 with me. We, we talked last time when we were talking about spiritual gifts that in 1 Corinthians 12 Paul discusses the spiritual gifts that have been given to each and every believer within the church. And there's an extensive teaching on that in 1 Corinthians 12. And if you look at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, down at verse 28, we see a listing of the gifts here. He says, And God has pointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts then of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And he, so here he's listing the gifts. Again, this isn't a complete list of the gifts. It's a few more than what we had last time. And, and there are many in that group that are no longer around anymore. But he's listing off these gifts. And he's talking about the spiritual gifts that have been given to the church for the building up of the body, just like we talked about last time. In the following verses, we see the diversity among them. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Not everyone has the same gift, right? My body is in all hands. My body is in all feet. In verse 31, he then says, But desire the greater gifts, but I show you a still more excellent way. So what's this excellent way? If we're... If we're performing and, and serving with our gifts, what's this excellent way? So now we come to 1 Corinthians 13. And what's 1 Corinthians 13? It's the love chapter, right? It's the love chapter of the Bible. And how does he start off this chapter? Verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. What's he getting at here? I can serve with my gift. I can do great things in and for this church around me. But if I don't do it with love, 
I might as well not be doing it at all. It's worthless. And that's really where Paul is, what Paul is getting at back in Romans chapter 12 as well, in going into this subject next. Love, we need to function with our gifts and everything else that we do with love. Now we talk about love, but what do we mean by love? When we talk about love today, we have a different idea. Everybody comes up with a different idea of what love is. But what's, love to, what, what's this love that Paul is talking about here? There are different kinds of love that we talk about in Scripture. The love that Paul is talking about here, as well as what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, and a good majority of other places, this is agape love. And we get that because that's the Greek word for this love, agapao, or agape. It's a self-sacrificing kind of love. It's a love that produces action. Sometimes we just say it's a love of action. Agape love is the love of action. It isn't merely a feeling that we have. When we talk about love sometimes, that's what we think about. We talk about falling in and out of love. Oh, I love this, I don't love that. When I was a kid, I loved this, I don't love it anymore. Those are feelings. This is not a feeling. This is a love that produces an effect. This is the type of love that we know about through the Word of God. It's the type of love that God showed to us. Back in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. Yes, He does. But how does He love us? By sending His Son to die for us. That's action. That is sacrifice. Would it have done, any, done us any good at all for God to have loving feelings for us, fallen, depraved, sinful mankind? Oh, I love them. I have these feelings for them, but not have done anything about it. That would have done us no good. Sadly, this is the perception that many in the world have today. That God has these warm, fuzzy feelings, this warm, fuzzy love for people, and that He would never send someone to hell. People have that perception of God. Oh, my God would never send someone to hell. And that just isn't true. It isn't biblical love, because God demonstrates His love by making a provision for sin in the death of His Son. There was an action, and this is the example that we have. This is our example of love. This is how we know what true love is, by what God did for us. Jesus talks about this love in the Bible, the most famous verse we have in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This shows the same concept here, there was the love that God had for the world. Again, these weren't just warm, fuzzy feelings. We were His enemies. But His love was a love of action. He loved the world. He provided a means of salvation. His love produced an action. He sacrificed His Son for us. Other times Jesus uses this word, not just about the love that God has for us, but in John 14, Verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says later on in that chapter, verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Do you say that you love Jesus Christ? If you do, and that's true, then there will be action involved in that love. Keeping His commandments, keeping His Word, obeying and submitting to Him as Lord of your life. It's the same type of idea of the love that we're supposed to have towards one another. I can go around and I can tell my wife I love her. Oh, here she is. <laughs> we didn't plan that. That's just... <laughs> And you might say, oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. That's, that's nice that you say. But does that mean anything if I don't also do things for her, if I don't provide for her, if I don't do nice things for her, if I neglect her? 
You say, you say you love her, but then this is the way that you act towards her. What does that show? It shows that I don't really love her. At that point, saying it doesn't really mean anything. That's not genuine love. A love of action is the love of the Bible. That's the Christian love that we're talking about here. Not only is it the type of love that we should have, but it's this type of love that is not possible. It was not possible for us to love this way before. This type of love has its source in God. Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. What's the first thing listed? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is a product of the Holy Spirit, of God Himself indwelling us. It is a fruit that He produces in us, and He produces in those who belong to Him. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 4. We see this here as well. God is the source of this kind of love. First John chapter 4, look at verse 7. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So who are those that love? Right? That have a true biblical concept of love in their lives? They are the ones who are born of God, the ones that are His children. People in the world can show love from time to time, but it's not the pattern of their lives. It's not a, it's not a truly unselfish, action-oriented type of love. In verses 9 through 10, John shows us what we've already looked at, that Jesus showed His love for us by being a sacrifice. He says, by this the love of God was manifested in, in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He became the satisfaction for the penalty of sin through His work on the cross. And in light of that love that He showed us, He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought to love one another, showing the same type of love, that same love that characterized Christ ought to be manifested in us. As we go through the rest of this chapter, it is this love that is foundational for all that we see. Because all the things that we go through here find their foundation in this type of love. Love that sacrifices, love that puts others first, love that acts for the benefit of the other person. So back in Romans chapter 12, how is this love to be shown? Love without hypocrisy, he says. Hypocrisy is a word that can be defined as an actor playing a part. It isn't genuine. It's nothing but a show. That's what hypocrisy is. Love isn't to be that way. It isn't to be counterfeit. It is to, it is to be genuine in the life of the believer. Our actions when we are serving others are to be for their good, to build them up, to provide assistance in times of need, not for our own selfish reasons, but for their edification. This is genuine love. This is not put on or made up. This is in contrast to the love of the world. The world shows love for its own personal gain, for what it can get out of it. It is not genuine love. It is hypocritical love. But our love is to be different than that. First Peter says, or Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 22, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Non-hypocritical love is a result here of a purified soul from obedience to the truth, the Word of God. This is an outpouring of our sanctification, of our growth, and of our transformation that we're talking about. And having a genuine brotherly love here, this is a different type of love that he mentions the word sincerity, therefore. And we'll talk about that type of love in a moment. But having a non-hypocritical brotherly love means that we can intensely love each other sacrificially, agape love, from the heart. 
So our love is to be genuine. And that's the basis for all that we do, all that comes after what Paul presents next. But in a very real sense, the next two things that Paul presents are subsets of this type of love and show us the characteristics of being a believer at their most basic level. He says, love without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. The word for abhor is a word that means to have a hatred of something. This is a strong word that Paul is using. So right after he says love, he says hate. Love without hypocrisy, hate what is evil. So our love is to be genuine, yet at the same time we are to hate that which is evil. And this would be anything that is contrary to the character of God. Anything that goes against the Word of God, anything that is in direct conflict with what we know from Scripture to be the will of God, we are to hate it with a passion. When we hate something this much, how could we desire? Can we desire for it to be a part of our lives? Can we tolerate it even in small quantities? Think of something that you hate. When I have a hatred for something, I have no difficulty leaving it alone. I'll, I'll bring up a subject of food. I know that my wife hates black licorice. I love black licorice. She hates black licorice. That means that I can't tempt her with little pieces of black licorice. I never find her going into the cupboard and opening the bag just to get a smell. Never. She wants nothing to do with it. That's the type of hatred. See, even now, even now. But that is something that she has no problem at all putting away from herself, stay, staying away from it in the first place. This is how the believer should be with sin. But instead, we struggle with sin sometimes. Why do we do that? Do we struggle with sins because we hate them the way that we're supposed to? No. We only struggle with the things that we don't hate, that we don't want to really let go of. The Puritans would refer to certain types of sins as, as bosom sins. Okay, we hate most sins. We hate, we let, we let most sins go, but then the Puritans would say there's, there's certain types of sins that are bosom sins, things that are like, eh, but that one I keep right here. I know I shouldn't, but I do. There are a few that we hold on to that we have a hard time with. Why would we do that? Sometimes we have an attitude of indifference towards sin. We get to the point where we become callous to sin around us. We may not participate in it, but it becomes more tolerable to us, especially since so many sins are becoming so open and acceptable today. We get inundated with these things. You watch a TV show today and you can't find a TV show that doesn't have homosexuality or adultery or corruption or lying or something in it. And you look at these things and it's everywhere and you can't watch or take in anything that doesn't have some type of sin in it. And then we get to the point where we watch these shows and it's like, oh, this show has these horrible sins, so I'm going to watch this other show because the sins there aren't as bad. It's not as bad as that, so then it just has these shows. So now all of a sudden we've accepted these, become callous to these because we really hate those. And if we aren't careful, we become accustomed to things like this. What should our attitude towards these things be? Hatred, Paul says, abhorrence. This goes along with people as well. It can go along with even acquaintances, coworkers, friends, even family at times. I worked with people before that I'm in the, in the office setting. I, I've had no problem with them, right? We've talked, we've become friends, we've, we go out to lunch together, but then they want to do something at night, and I've gone over, and I've, they wanted to go out after work or something, and then you, they just become so much different when they're in a different setting that it's like, you know what, I can't hang around with them in that setting. I can't do it. The things they talk about, the things they want to, want to say, the way that they talk, I cannot do that. I don't expect for unbelievers to act like a believer, 
They are unable to do that, but I don't have to be around their sin. I don't have to be around their corruption, their filthy talk, that sort of thing. I shouldn't want to have any part of that. As a believer in Jesus Christ, what should I do? I should go from one extreme, abhorring sin, these things over here, and I should go clear to the other side. Cling to what is good, he says. On the opposite end, we are to cling to what is good. This is another strong word. It means to be glued to something. It doesn't just mean, oh, hate those things, but uh, think about this stuff. No, this is be glued to what is good. Hate sin, hate those characteristics, glue yourselves to those things that are good. Become inseparably linked to those things. This word is used in the picture of marriage. What we know that marriage should be like. Unfortunately, not the way the world thinks of marriage today, but what we know marriage should be like. Matthew 19, 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the same word used here. Like in a marriage relationship, you are attach yourselves to the things like this, the things that are good. What are good things? What, what things is he talking about here? These are things that are acceptable to God. The same idea is in Philippians chapter 4. Turn over to Philippians 4 with me. Another list of things that we're probably all familiar with, listed out for us here in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, 8. Many of us could probably recite it. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. As believers, it's these types of things where our focus and our minds should be. This is where our daily thoughts should be consumed, is on these types of things. Operating with a love of action, we are to hate evil and glue ourselves to those things that are good, those things that are acceptable to God. In its simplest form, this is the life of the believer. This is the transformation that has taken place in us. Remember, way back when we studied through Romans chapter 1, we were characterized there by all kinds of evil. He, Paul talked about who we were before God saved us. He said in Romans 1, 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they, knew, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is where we came from. Now we have been crucified to all of that. These things ought to be dead to us. To go back to that is conforming ourselves to the world. That's what he was talking about in, chapter, or in verse 2 of this chapter. This is no longer what we're about. Our life now is being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what we glue ourselves to, distancing ourselves as far as we can from those things that used to be true of us. So having established the foundation, Paul now moves on to more specific examples of Christian character here. He says in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Here we have love again, but like I mentioned before, this love here is a different type of love that we had before. This is a brotherly love, a, a, a love of brother, a family kind of love. This is phileo. You know, the city of Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly love, that's where that comes from. Phileo is brotherly love. Where agape love is a love of action, phileo love is a love of, of closeness, as in a family. 
We have entered into a new family as believers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This would be more of an emotional type of love. The word for devoted is a word used in reference to that family relationship. Our association with one another shouldn't be all business-like. It should be with the affection of a family. We should actually have cares and concerns for one another. When we are devoted to each other in this way, we will do whatever it takes to encourage each other, to build each other up, the same as we would with our own families. When your kid or your grandkid wins a game or a contest or they do something significant, you rejoice with them, right? Your family is happy for them. We have joy at their successes. Similarly, when a family member something bad happens to them, they lose a job or they get some type of sickness. There's concern, there's mourning, there's sadness with them in that. Now we could say, well, these things, do they directly affect me? Well, not directly, right? I didn't win that game. I wasn't playing in the game. I didn't win it. I'm not the one that has that sickness. But they do affect me because I have this type of love and devotion for my family, right? That tears my heart out to know that that family member has that type of, type of sickness or that pain that they're going through. This is how we should be within the church. We rejoice when our members rejoice. We grieve when they grieve. We are committed to one another, devoted to one another, and we are to function that way. Give preference to one another in honor, he goes on there. And this flows out of what we've just seen. We see here another example of the humility that we are to have as believers. When we have the affection that we, that we should have towards one another, how can we not give them preference in our lives? I sit there and my grandkids come over and my three-year-old granddaughter wants to have a tea party with me. Where am I? Nope, I'm too busy. I got to go to... No, I'm down on the floor having a tea party. Why? I give preference to her. That's that type of attitude. When we have that affection that we should have for each other, how can we not give preference to each other? The world says differently. The world says just the opposite. The world says we must put ourselves before anyone else. And we see this all the time. But what does the Bible say? What does God want us to do? Give the other person preference. Give them the place of honor, even over and above yourself. We looked at a verse in Philippians 2 last time. I'll just read it for you again. It fits well with what Paul's talking about here. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We aren't simply to act kindly towards them. We're not simply to act like treat each other as equals, we are to put each other above ourselves, regarding each other as more important than ourselves. We put these things to the test sometimes. Say you're serving with someone, maybe making meals for someone, maybe you're setting up chairs, taking down chairs, getting things organized or something like that around here. And in all honesty, you know, you're there with one other person and in all honesty, you look and you think, you know what, I got here earlier than they did. I stayed later than they did. I put out more chairs than they did. And you just, that's just the way it was, right? And the next Sunday, you're standing over there getting coffee, and you overhear somebody that's talking to them, and they say, oh, I just wanted to thank you for your service. Telling them, I want to thank you so much for the service that you did last week. And then that person turns and looks at you and says, good morning, and then walks away. How would that make us feel? Would that irritate us? That we wouldn't get recognized for doing maybe even more than what the person that got recognized did? Or would we give that person preference above ourselves? Would we think to ourselves, you know what? They were here. They were serving. They did do a good job. I should thank them as well. I'll thank them also for their service last week. You know, if we're really giving them preference, if we are really considering them as more important than ourselves, then that's how we would act. You hear all the time about believers who don't get along with each other, who have disputes with one another. And I have to ask myself, 
How many of those disputes would be solved if each person in that dispute was just giving preference to the other person? Another characteristic, we start in verse 11. He says, not lagging behind in diligence. This is not growing lazy or lax in our service. And this is, again, within the context of our worship to the Lord and of our serving with our spiritual gifts. We should not lag behind in diligence. We shouldn't confuse this with just taking a break, right? We all get to the point where we might need to take a break, catch our breath, we go on vacation, whatever, we miss a, miss a week. But the problem comes in when people get the attitude that, you know what, I can take a break and then I don't come back. Oh, I need to take a break. I don't want to do that ministry anymore. And Well, what are you doing now? Well, I'm between ministries. I'm between things. We feel like we've put in enough time and we're just done. Or even worse, we get to a point where we start to compromise and we cut corners in our service and in our doctrine and we start to feel like not giving our best effort as well, that's good enough. Paul mentions many times that as Christians, we're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle and a spiritual warfare. And we need to be prepared to fight in that battle at all times. I can sometimes take a step back and rest, but if I do, it should be for the purpose of getting myself ready to jump back into service with zeal. And it should be a time where I'm just recharging my batteries to get right back into whatever it is I need to be doing. Have you ever noticed that when someone first gets saved, oftentimes there's a fire. Somebody gets saved and there's a zeal. They want to jump in. They want to do everything. And then over time, they begin to calm down. They settle in a little bit. We look at that sometimes and we think, well, they've become more mature. They've learned that you just can't do it that way. You can't do everything. And people might say, well, you can't keep talking to everyone about Jesus. You need to learn that there are times and places where you just shouldn't do that. They need to keep a lower profile. Or they might say, you can't serve all the time. You'll burn out. You'll have, you have to learn to compartmentalize your service, be gung-ho at church, but then leave that aside while you go out and go out and have fun, do whatever you want to do. And sometimes we think that's a mature attitude. But I don't think that's a mature attitude. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. That's lagging behind in diligence. I think sometimes new believers start to see the way that people that have been doing it a long time have been doing it, and they start to think, oh, maybe I should be more like them. We lose our fire, we lose our zeal, and we try to make ourselves believe that that's the normal way for us to behave. For the believer, it's not normal to lose your diligence. It's sinful to lose your diligence. We're never told to back off. We're never told to make sure that we have enough breaks or take long enough breaks. We're never told to retire from service to the church. Sure, we maybe get to the age where we slow down. Maybe we get to the age where we can't do as many. I can't, I can't do three racks of chairs anymore, but maybe I can do two racks of chairs, or maybe I can do half a rack of chairs. But that's not a sign to stop. It's a sign to keep doing as much as we can, when we can. But the next thing Paul says, he goes right along with this with one, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit. The word for fervent is a word that means to be boiling, fiery hot. It's just the opposite of what he said. This is having a passionate zeal for service to the Lord. Oh, I'm not on fire like that, but I haven't completely quit either. I choose my battles. I serve from time to time where I have time to give. Is that our attitude? Is that truly being a living sacrifice? I'm not boiling hot. I guess you could say I'm lukewarm. I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm ready. I keep myself warm, ready to go if somebody asks me. You think of lukewarm, you think of the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What Jesus is saying here that by their deeds they were just getting by. They weren't on fire. They hadn't completely quit either. They were lukewarm. They needed to choose one or the other because lukewarm didn't cut it. Lukewarm isn't acceptable service. 
He says, I will spit you out of my mouth, literally vomit you out. Christians in the body of Christ are to be fervent on fire for the Lord. This is to be our pattern of service. Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. We aren't to become lazy with our gifts and in our service, but we are to stoke the fire, kindle afresh the gift of God. Why? Because we have been given a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of discipline. That's who we are. And this flows right into the next phrase that he says there in, in uh, verse 11. He's serving the Lord. It is with fire, not laziness, that we are to serve our Lord. And this is with a slave-like service. The word for serving is a word that means to be in bondage. And this isn't new in Romans. We saw back in chapter 6 that we are slaves to righteousness. We are to be presenting our bodies as slaves to righteousness. Why should we be on fire? Why shouldn't we quit? Why shouldn't we see it as just something that's optional? I get tired. I sometimes feel like I don't want to go on. That would be reason enough if I was just serving myself. But I'm not. Who am I serving? Who am I in bondage to? I am in bondage to Jesus Christ. Paul started this letter by calling himself Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 1. In his letter to Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. James, in, the first, in his letter, James 1.1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, in his second letter, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. This is how these guys identified themselves. This is why they don't give up. This is why we are to have diligence, why we have zeal in our service. This isn't a hobby that we're involved in. This isn't a club that we've joined. We aren't doing it for ourselves. We are in it to serve our Lord, the one who died for us. He's the master who bought us. We are doing this to magnify his name upon the earth, to spread his good news, to bring glory and honor to him. If someone comes to me and says, why don't you relax? Why don't you cut it Cut back a notch. Why don't you take a few months off of service? There's a part of my mind that would be like, oh, that would be nice and relaxing. But what it should be like is that, no, are you crazy? Why would I take off time for service, from service? If I take off time from this, where else do you need me? Where else do you want me to be? What else can I do? I'm going to fill my time with serving in another area. This is fiery hot service. This is the type of devotion, of dedication and diligence that we should have in our, in our service to God. You know, there's no retirement age in the church, in the Christian life. By all means, retire from your job when you can. I'm looking forward to that day where I can retire from my job. But now with that free time, fervently use that to serve the Lord. Praise God for that kind of fiery service. Verse 12 starts off, rejoicing in hope. A believer is to be rejoicing in hope. Fixing our attention on our hope enables us to function with an attitude of joy. What is our hope? What does he mean by that? Our hope is the glory that is to come. It's being able to spend all eternity with our Lord. That is the hope that we have. That's where our hope is fixed. We saw that back when we were in chapter 5 of Romans. In verse 2, he talked about the grace in which we now stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. For the believer, we function with our eyes looking ahead to the glory that awaits us. This is where our joy today is derived, not from the things that are around us now. We don't, find, we don't derive our joy from the things that are around us in this life. We live... Today, we live lives that are in pain. We have suffering. There's persecution today. There's trials. There's things, many things around us that are not joyful. But when we look forward and toward what God has in store for us in glory, 
that he is using trials to mature and to perfect us, that he will one day raise us up to be with him in glory. We rejoice in that because we know what is to come. We know where we will spend eternity with our Lord and Savior for all eternity. And when we have our minds properly fixed, it makes the things that he says easier to take as well when we have our minds fixed on that. The next thing he says is persevering in tribulations, right? He pairs that up again. A true believer will be able to persevere through the trials that will come. We don't like trials. I don't like trials. Nobody likes trials and tribulations. A word, it's a word that means to have pressure, as if being crushed under a weight. That's not enjoyable for anyone. But Paul doesn't say here that if we rejoice in hope, there won't be any tribulations, there won't be any trials or problems. That's not what it says. It says that we will be able to persevere, to stay under the pressure, to endure it. Turn back with me to Romans 5. I mentioned it a minute ago, but look, look with me at uh, the first few verses here in Romans 5. We'll start in verse 1. Remember, this is our building blocks, right? We've, we've been building these arguments all throughout this letter. This is one of the blocks that we looked at. Verse 1 of Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So that's the part that I mentioned before. We are now at peace with God through our relationship to the Son, and we stand in grace, exulting or rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. But remember what came next, verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. We exult in hope. That one's easy for us to understand, right? We rejoice in hope, but we also exult in tribulations. Why? Because that's what God uses in our lives to grow us, to perfect us, to sanctify us. And what this means is that there will be tribulations in the believer's life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you identify yourself with Jesus Christ and you tell people about Jesus Christ, there will be trouble. There will be problems from that. God never says that there wouldn't be trials. In fact, he told us just the opposite. John 15, verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Being identified with Christ, we can't expect to have it any easier than he did. The world hated him. And here we come, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. You think the world's going to love us? They're not. When we got to Romans 8, we saw that in order to get to the glory, we have to go through the suffering. That's the life of the believer. But God grants us the strength to persevere through our trials, to make it through these tribulations. And then he finishes in verse 12, by saying devoted to prayer. It's another characteristic that we have, devoted to prayer. This is a persistent, faithful prayer where we are constantly coming before the Lord. You know, living under pressure, rejoicing on a daily basis, being on fire in our service, right? All these things that we've been talking about, sometimes it's like, it feels like it's too much for us to handle. It's like, how can I do all these things? How can I possibly live like that all the time? How can I possibly make it through another trial? How can I possibly then show up at church and be on fire for my service? And how can I, how can I do these things? Well, in and of ourselves, it is too much for us to handle. That's why our prayer life needs to be in order. We're not going through this alone. We Pray to God. We have a Savior who is sympathetic to us, who knows what we are going through because He went through more than we ever will. Hebrews 2.18, For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
We come before God and lift up our praises and our requests daily and put our troubles in His hands. And He is faithful to provide us with everything that we need. This is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. A life that we live for God in service to Him, live on fire for Him. But one in which we also rely on Him. Come to Him with our praises, come to Him with our requests, come to Him with our fears and our doubts, come to Him asking for strength and wisdom. Continually, daily, at all times, never forgetting that we are serving Him in everything that we do. And we do it all together as well. We do it with God, but we're not just individual lone wolves out there doing this. We're doing this together as a church body. We do this together. We do this with one another. And as a part of that togetherness with the body, we see that next as well in verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints, he says. Believers should be involved in meeting the needs of other believers. What did we see earlier? We see that we are to have that brotherly love towards one another, that family type of love. When it comes to our family, we are to have no hesitation. We would have no hesitation to provide for their needs. In the very early church, right, when Paul was writing this, believers were in a situation where they lost family, they lost possession, they lost jobs, all because of their faith. The result being that there was a great deal of need in the church. You look through the book of Acts and there's examples. Acts 2.45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They were in those types of situations. Acts 4.34 and 35, Acts 6.1-6, you see the same type of examples. Now does this mean that we are to sell everything that we have and pool it all together and live in a commune? No. That's not what we're talking about here. Some people would say that. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Paul is saying in Romans 12. That's not what the examples from Acts show us. But the point is that we are to be willing to help our brothers and sisters in need, even if it means personal sacrifice for ourselves. Look with me over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a good example of this. Ephesians chapter 4 is another chapter that Paul uh, is talking about the way believers are to live based on who they are, right? You have the first three chapters of Ephesians that, like Romans, it's the doctrinal section in the first three chapters, and then he gets to chapter 4, and the rest of the book is describing how we are to live or how we are to walk. Well, down in verse 28 of Ephesians 4, we break into another list of things that he's presenting here. And he says in verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. And now see this here. So that he will have something to share with one who has need. So you see the command here. He's, what he's talking about is before you were saved, you might have been in a position where you stole. This might have been your life before you were saved. Try to get something only for yourself. You were stealing things. But now as a believer, you don't steal. That's not, the, that's not what should define you. You work, you labor with your own hands. And not only that, but you labor so that you might have enough to share with others. You see how we come to a complete 180 degree difference from what we were before. No longer looking out only for ourselves, but we look out for one another. Looking out how we can help each member of the body of Christ. We're usually fine with sacrifice when we're talking about things like our time, when we're talking about an effort to put in more time. I might help someone move. I don't help people move as much anymore. My back won't really let me do that. But um, might help someone do something. Uh, Help someone with a meal, drive it out to them. I could drive a meal to someone, that doesn't hurt my back. But don't ask me to touch my wallet. Don't ask me to give up my possessions. Don't ask me to give up my things. People might say, I feel sorry for them, but what you're talking about is really going to cost me. But again, what are we talking about? We're talking about our family. We're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
What did we see before back in verse 10? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to each other in honor. If I'm devoted to you and I am giving preference to you, then how can I not meet the needs that you have? Turn over with me to 1 John chapter 3. I think we're going to get through all this today. Remember, Paul started out this list here. What's our foundational, what's the foundational thing that defines this list? It's love, right? Talking about agape, self-sacrificing love. In 1 John 3, look at verse 16. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is love, that we would be willing to give our lives for our brethren, following the example that we have from Christ. Now the good news is, it's highly unlikely that we will ever have to give up our lives for someone else. But what can we do? We can contribute to their needs, literally share or fellowship in their needs to each other's needs. Oftentimes this is where reality sits in, where our Christian knowledge turns into Christian practice and the Christian life. This is a real life example of what we were called to. We should be ready to provide for the needs of our brethren, even if it means personal sacrifice. However, I will caveat this. We also understand that there's a balance to this. Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. There's a word of warning to those who might try to take advantage of others in the church. And, it, and it's apparent in, in uh, the church at Thessalonica that people were taking advantage of this. 2 Thessalonians 3, look down at verse 10. Paul says here, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, not doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Some people may say, great, I can hit up everyone else in church for all that everything that I need, all my provisions, and I don't have to lift a finger. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those who with needs that they can't control, those that have needs because they've become sick or injured or laid off from work, or as in the case in the early church, they were persecuted and they, they, they could not find jobs because no one would give them jobs. And there were others that had that could provide for some of their needs. That was the terrible persecution that they were going through. There were genuine needs going on in the church, and the church was to be ready and able to help those in need, not needs necessarily that they had brought upon themselves, that they brought upon themselves because, oh, I don't want to do anything. I'll hit up somebody else and have them buy my groceries this week. That's not what we're talking about. So there's always discernment that's needed here, but that doesn't get in the way of the willingness that we ought to have to contribute to one another. And the last one that we look at in verse 13, we'll get to it quickly here, practicing hospitality. The word for practicing is an active word, meaning to pursue or strive after something. The word for hospitality means to love strangers. Literally, this is a pursuing love for strangers. In the early church, it was common practice for travelers to either have to find someone to stay with in a town or they would have to sleep on the streets. You couldn't go online and, and get a hotel reservation. And in fact, many of the hotels in those days, you wouldn't want to stay at because you would probably get robbed or worse. The concept of showing hospitality to strangers would involve seeking those people out, people that you didn't know necessarily, people that needed something for you. Maybe they needed food or maybe they needed a place to stay. I don't think hospitality necessarily needs to be shown just to strangers, but it should include up to that level for us. Believers that we don't know, that we aren't necessarily close to, shouldn't really matter. We should be willing to open up our homes to fellow believers. Peter says, chapter 4, 1 Peter, be, hospi be hospitable to one another without complaint. Once again, our attitude is involved here. Without complaining, it's not just being hospitable, it's not just doing it 
to do it, going through the motions, it's doing it without complaining, doing it with the right attitude. A willingness to not only contribute to their needs, but also a willingness to bring them into your own home, pursuing being able to provide for their needs in every way. So we're gonna end there for today. Uh, we're a little bit over. Uh, but so far in this list that Paul's been presenting here, we're continuing to see in the way in which we ought to conduct ourselves, and we'll continue on with that in our next study next week. So let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for your word once again. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and the way that you used him to bring us uh, this letter to the Romans. We pray, Lord, that as we look through these characteristics and these things that ought to be true of us, that we would take them to heart. Pray, Lord, that we would just understand um, just how we should live, how we should behave, what our conduct should be in light of the mercies that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, so much for uh, just the gift of salvation that you've brought to us, and we pray, Lord, that we would be living that out in a way that honors you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.